Our text is going to be Romans chapter 8 this morning, part of what I've read already. We're not going to have the words up on the screen today because I'm going to walk us through the text. So if you have your Bible with you, I just encourage you to open it up to Romans chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible and would like one, there are some available in the, in the back. Uh, so you can pick one up right now if you would like. So if you've been with us these last four weeks, this season that we call Advent, you know that our theme has been about hope. However, even though we've declared hope is here, it hasn't kept us from speaking about the things that are not right in our world. I've done this publicly in the sermons. I've tried to name some things, some things that I have been feeling and and maybe vocalizing some things that you have been feeling as well. And I'm hoping and I'm thinking that even though I've been naming some things publicly, that hasn't kept you from also participating in the naming of what's wrong in our world. And maybe you've been doing that privately as you've been thinking about these messages, as you've gone home. Maybe there have been some discussions that have happened around the table or in the family room about what is going on in our world. Naming the hurts, naming the wrongs, Indeed, part of the desire I had for turning to the prophet Isaiah during this Advent season was so that we would have a biblical model, a biblical guide to know how to lament. It's not something that we do very well, truth be told. Particularly in American Christianity, we don't lament all that often, but I think, friends, we need to learn. I believe we live in a time where the way forward for us as witnesses of God is for us to again find ourselves sitting at the crossroads of life where lament and hope intersect. I think that's what we've seen in the prophet Isaiah if we were listening carefully is that he was lamenting the sins and the reality of the brokenness in our world, but he was doing it in a hopeful way. Hope is here. In this place of disruption, disorder, and disease, all ways that we could describe our world right now, in that place, a question still remains. The question that this Advent series has pointing, uh, been pointing us to all along the way, what hope does Christianity offer us? What does our faith offer us when life goes awry? At the end of 2023, we are wrestling with this question head on. We've, we've had uh, little foretastes of it all throughout the Advent series where we've proclaimed that, that God hears us, that God is here, that God sees us, that God acts. All of those are foundational to our idea of what does Christianity offer us when the world goes awry. But friends, I think the fundamental question is going to be answered today. And to answer this, we need to turn away from the prophet Isaiah because he can't offer the answer that I want to suggest to you today. We need to turn to the Apostle Paul. We haven't been in Romans, as you know, and we won't be in Romans in this coming year, although if you got the e-news, you know we'll be in a lot of books this coming year. 
If you didn't get the e-news, then you can click on the check-in box as you check in on your app. You can click that you need to be added to the e-news, and we'd be glad to add you to it. But you also see if you open up the app that there is a Preaching 2024 calendar in there that you can see all of the books, 12 books of the Bible that we're going to be in this coming year. And if you don't have access to the app or you don't want the app, there are some printed copies on the back table back there for you. But none of the 12 are the book of Romans. But I've chosen this passage because I think it answers the question that we have been building up to all Advent season. What is the hope of Christianity? So let's begin with just a little context, since we're just jumping into the book, and then we're going to jump out of it. It's not the best way to preach, by the way, but today it will be worthwhile, I think, and we'll do it from time to time in this coming year. But let me give us a little bit of context so that you understand what is happening in in Romans as we come to chapter 8. Maybe it's been a while since you've read this book. Paul has built a case that all of humanity is sinful, that we can't avoid it. This is the reality of our lives. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The law has exposed this and proved our sinfulness to us, but the law has not been able to resolve the problem in and of itself. Christ had to come to do that. And through his life, death, and resurrection, a reversal has happened. The old Adam gave us the life of sin, but this new Adam has offered us a new humanity, a new way to live. And this new humanity, this new way of living that Christ has offered for us only becomes realized in us because of the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Chapter 8 comes as a climax to this argument that Paul has been building all throughout these chapters. And it's in that chapter that we are told that we can become so connected to God, to the holy God. Remember, we are sinners. But we can be so connected to God that you and I can cry out to the Holy One. And we can do so with the intimacy of saying, Abba, Father. That we don't have to live in fear because of our sinfulness. That that we can be uh, in relationship with God. That He invites us into His presence so that we can call Him Abba, Daddy. We sinners get to do this, and that's a, a remarkable thought. Paul says that we can do this because we are no longer slaves. Even though that's what we were born into, slavery to sin, we no longer have to stay in that slavery. In fact, he says that we are now the children of God. And how is this possible, he says, because you and I have been adopted. Friends, what does that language mean? Well, it means you didn't earn it, and you didn't deserve that. But God chose it. God chose you. And God chose me. We've been adopted. And the result of this adoption is that we are named co-heirs with Christ. We share in Christ's reward. It's good good news, right? If you haven't read Romans in a while, you might want to read it. It's good. It's at this high point where we have been named as the adopted ones, the co-heirs with Christ, that Paul shifts in verse 18. I consider that our present suffering, sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. 
Paul is writing 700 to 800 years after the prophet Isaiah. And yet his words seem to fit the context that we have been in all throughout this Advent season. Once again, we open up our scriptures, and what do we discover? That the people of God are suffering. We heard that time and again in Isaiah. And here in Romans, we hear about suffering. Suffering means lament. It means crying out to God because all is not right in my world and in your world and in our world. Suffering is abounding And Paul is not afraid to name this reality. Two words in this verse strike me as critical this morning. The word our and the word us. Our present suffering. I think one of the great tragedies of the contemporary American Christianity that you and I have been raised in is that we have been given this Christianity that has an extreme aversion to the idea of suffering. It's something to be avoided at all costs. Now, suffering's never fun. That's why they call it suffering. But the way Christians talk about suffering, the way I've heard Christians talk about it, it's it's almost like we, we whisper that thing. And then we quickly move on to, but, but something good, something positive. We don't want to sit in the, the negative. We don't want to sit in the suffering part. We want to quickly move on to what we hope will be the good that comes out of it. Time and again, Paul, like Jesus before him and Isaiah before him, acknowledges the suffering of life and the suffering that comes in actually following Jesus Christ, our Savior. The prosperity gospel preachers who want to say that only good will come to us if we have enough faith, I don't think have read Paul very well. I don't think they understand Jesus' message very well. Because Paul, on the heels of declaring us the adopted children of God, names a reality that is known to each and every generation. Suffering. The Christian faith is not immune from suffering. The Christian is not immune from personal suffering. You didn't need me to tell you that, did you? You know that. You've lived it. Our present suffering is named. It's spoken out loud by Paul as if it's fact. Because it is fact, isn't it? It's a reality of life. Paul doesn't unpack this lament. What what is the suffering that he's referencing here, our present suffering? He doesn't actually name it. He doesn't have to name it because, friends, his original audience would know what he's talking about. He's writing to Christians in Rome, and, and no doubt they're suffering persecution. He doesn't have to name what the suffering is. They know And I wonder, 2,000 years have passed since Paul wrote these words to his original audience. And still, our, our present suffering means something to us, doesn't it? All of those things we've lamented this year. The reality of living in a post Christian society has been lamented. Do you remember 1 Peter? The cancer diagnoses. 
that we've experienced in this congregation have been lamented. Relational hurts that have happened in your lives have been lamented. The hatred that we see in our world, the wars that have happened in our world, just this year alone we've lamented together the death of loved ones, job losses, We've even lamented just the fatigue of all of the negativity of our society right now. Oh, we've named so many things this year, and particularly the last four weeks I've tried to name things that we need to lament, things that are not right in our world. But friends, for all those things that I've named, how many more have gone unnamed? All those things that are not right in our lives that's happening to us or, or to our friends, our family, our co-workers, that's happening even in our country and in our world. Oh, our present suffering indeed. Paul names it, and you and I know it. He doesn't have to give us all the words to explain what the suffering is you and I are living it. And like our faith ancestors before, we know what he's talking about. So let's not forget that we live in a world that has been totally marred by sin. That's his argument in Romans. Like a stone being dropped into a pond, the ripples of sin keep reverberating through society, through humanity, through us. It's an overwhelming reality if you think about it. But Paul doesn't lament as a person without hope. He names it. Oh, our present suffering. Oh, there's so much in those few words. But he also has hope. Despite the reality of suffering, Paul says, a glory is coming that will be revealed in us. Redemption is coming. Renewal is coming. There is hope in the midst of suffering. Amen? I mean, we we need to believe that. Otherwise, what's suffering for? We have to believe that there's something that will come out of this. There's hope in the midst of the suffering, and it's not just for a few of us or even some of us. Did you notice that? It's for us. All those that are in the midst of our present suffering, the communal suffering, it's those same ones that are included in this communal glory. The glory's coming, he says. Verse 20. For the children of, uh, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Here Paul is referencing Adam. He's pulling us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Oh, there's punishment that comes because of the act of disobedience of Adam and Eve. We know that. And and God extends or delivers that punishment on the couple. And all of creation is caught up in this punishment. We know that to be true. We're living it to this day. But friends, the will of the one that has brought this on is not the will of God the Father. It is the will of Adam. Adam is the one that willfully chose to eat. It's, it's Eve that willfully chose to eat. It's their will that, that went against God. It's theirs that brought this chaos onto all of creation. Paul says all of creation has been frustrated. Not just humanity. 
but all of creation. Every bit of creation has been touched by the ripples of sin, affected. Indeed, he uses the language of bondage. It's been held captive to this reality. It's been caught up in this tragedy through no fault of its own. All of creation affected by the willful actions of humanity. Your sins and mine have been more ripples that have added to this pond that we live in. It's not just Adam and Eve. It's you and I that have contributed, throwing our sinful stones into that pond, causing more and more ripples. Verse 22 offers us a poignant metaphor for this situation. As Paul's building his argument, he offers us a way to think about what this is like, and so a metaphor is provided. It's as if the whole of creation is in labor. This idea speaks to both the suffering and the pain, the reality of the hurt right now, but it also speaks to hope. I don't think there's a mother alive. You can raise your hand if you disagree with me. That would say that childbirth is pain-free. No hands? <laughs> I suspected that was the case. I mean, I haven't done it, but uh, I've, I've witnessed it. Um, yeah. Labor is painful. But that pain points to something beyond itself, doesn't it? The pain, the suffering is given meaning. It's, it's not pointless because the end result of all of this pain and suffering, this laboring, is life, a child. And, and of course, I want to say right here that that doesn't always happen. We know that. And we need to be people that lament when childbirth goes awry and suffer with those who suffer in that reality because then that suffering didn't lead to new life. But Paul's argument here is that the suffering is going to lead to life. New life is coming. Now far from being a, what I'm going to call, pie-in-the-sky pipe dream, sometimes hope seems like that. But that's not what Paul's talking about at all here. It's grounded. This, this hope that he's speaking about, this, this hope that he's, he's pointing us to, this new life, it's grounded in the present. It's grounded in reality. It's not something that's, that's mysterious and far off and, and maybe out there somewhere. It's here. It's now. It's, in fact, tied to our very bodies, he says. And friends, I think this is a very important truth for us. Because the answer to the question, what is Christian hope, cannot be that we are to escape from this place. That's not what Paul says to us at all. The answer to the question, what do we hope for, to be ripped out of here, is not the answer. That's shocking maybe to some of you. Because that's been presented to some of us through Christian literature and some theologians that the hope, the ultimate hope that you have is that you're going to be taken from this place. But 
That's not what Paul says. Did you hear what Paul is saying? All of creation is crying out. All of creation is in the midst of labor because new life is coming. Hope is coming here. And now it's going to break into our reality. We don't have to be ripped out of this place to have hope. The shift The shift, I think, is in verse 23 highlights why he believes we can have hope here and now. He says in verse 23, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. The first fruits of hope. All of creation is groaning, but something is happening even now. In 1 Corinthians, Paul speaks of Christ as being the first fruits of our salvation. But here, he says, we are the first fruits of the Spirit's work. Christ offers us the way of salvation, the path of salvation, the new way of living. But it is only as we commune with the Spirit that we can actually live into that new way. And the Spirit is the one that leads us. In that way, the shift to the Spirit is critical, and why we had to move from Isaiah to Paul. Because in verses 24 and 25, he tells us that the Spirit can't be seen, and sometimes we can't see the evidence of God at work in this world. It's hard to see it. We see the evidence of brokenness, we see the evidence of sin marring creation, we see that aplenty. But sometimes it's hard to see the subtle changes and and the little ways that God's kingdom is breaking forth. We can't always see. And we don't see the Holy Spirit. Paul continues in this thinking of the Spirit and picking up in verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Paul's describing here what it means to be in actual relationship with the living God. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is our translator, helping us to understand what God is trying to communicate to us and helping us to communicate to the Father. Because as Paul says, the Spirit is the one who carries our feeble and broken, unworthy request to the very throne room of God. It's the Spirit who interprets our very groans. Have you been there, friends? where you can't even vocalize exactly what you're feeling, and all you have are sighs and groans, tears. Guess who's carrying that to the very throne room of God Almighty, the Holy Spirit? So finally, after four weeks, now in our fifth week, I think we've arrived at the answer to our question. 
I think this is the hope of Christianity. In the face of suffering, despite the reality of sin, God has come. The way of salvation has been made known. That's not new. I preached that last week. You know that. You've heard that. We relive that every nativity story. Christ has come. Emmanuel, God with us. But friends, that truth is only the first part of our Christian hope. It's only the first part. It's not the whole. The second part that Paul declares for us is that God has come and God has stayed. God has come and God has stayed. I wonder if we sometimes forget that. God has come in the incarnation. Oh, we've already celebrated that all of last Sunday. Christ took on flesh and became one with us so that we could become one with him. That's the very grounding, the start of our hope, to be sure. But to leave our hope there is to make hope a thing of the past. Jesus came 2,000 years ago. He ascended to the right hand of the Father two millennia ago. The past, that past, is made alive today because God has stayed with us. The Holy Spirit makes Christ's work come alive in us today. Amen? Yes. Hope is here because the Spirit is here. Hope is now because the Spirit is always now. In sickness, the Spirit is here. In persecution, the Spirit is here. In loss, the Spirit is here. In our present suffering, guess who's with us? The Holy Spirit. And because the Spirit is now, we can boldly declare with Paul, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Who have been called according to his purpose. This statement is not a declaration that God causes all these bad things that we've been talking about or living to happen. I hope you don't believe that. But it is a statement that declares that no matter the bad that is happening, God is present and God is active. The Spirit is at work, and because the triune God is for us and not against us, we can have hope today, because God will do what God is always doing, redeeming, renewing. God will eventually come, or good will eventually come from all this brokenness. I hope you believe that. That's what Christian hope wants to proclaim to us. Despite all the sinfulness, despite all the loss, despite all the tragedy, despite all the brokenness around us, that God is at work and God is redeeming and that there is a new creation that is breaking forth in your life and in mine. And not just here, but outside the walls of our church. All of creation is being caught up in this renewal. This is Paul's point as he comes to these closing verses in verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Some want to make this a statement about 
God taking away our free will. That God is somehow choosing some to be saved and some not to be saved. But that's not the argument that Paul's making at all in Romans. What is he ending this section with these words for? Well, friends, you and I should read these words and hear these words about God being in control, God being sovereign, and that we should feel secure. Because guess what? Your hope isn't based on yourself. Your hope isn't based on how good you get it. Your hope isn't based on what successes you have. What is your hope grounded in? God Almighty. And God will accomplish what God wills. And what does he will? That some of us will be saved and some not be saved? No. That you will be adopted. That you will be his children. That you will be co-heirs with Christ. That even in the midst of the suffering, that you will be a foretaste to all of the world. That hope is here. That God is redeeming. Because you are going to testify to it with your very body right now. Do you believe that, church? Hmm, that was kind of tepid. <laughs> Do you? It's a hard thing to believe, isn't it? Kind of challenging. Because the testimony that we are bombarded with is a challenging one. The world is chaotic right now. What's 2024 going to hold for us? Peace and tranquility? Mm, I hope. I don't suspect that's going to be the case, though. And you and I can't control what's going to happen in the greater forces of our world. We can trust that God, in the midst of all the chaos, is sovereign, is working. And here's the thing that boggles my mind. God doesn't sit in heaven like some sort of master robot, manipulating reality the way that he wants, using you any way that he desires, that's not how God has chosen to interact with this world. What has he done? He's called for partners. For you and I to cooperate with his grace, to participate with him. So this year, no matter what comes, chaos or good, we get to be the people that in the midst of the good and the bad, are always pointing people to God. That's your responsibility in this coming year. And I don't know if you're prepared for it. I don't know that I'm prepared for it. But I'm thinking maybe we should start getting prepared because it's tomorrow. (laughs) I'm going to ask the praise team to come forward. Maybe we need a song to kind of help us settle What do you want to offer to God this coming year? What do you think he's calling you to? Are you going to trust him? He's a good God. He has good plans for you. God, in these closing moments of worship, we think about these words that the Apostle Paul has given us, words that remind us that Yes, you're a God that sees us. Yes, you're a God that acts. Yes, you're a God that comes. We saw all of that in in Isaiah, but you're also a God that has stayed because you've offered us your Holy Spirit. We need your Spirit today. 
even right now, we need your spirit to help us discern what is it that you're asking of each of us, young and old, men and women. What are you asking of us, God? We need to hear your voice, so we ask for your spirit to speak to us. Help us to listen.